Oh, Lord God Almighty, King of the universe, Master of all of our destinies, King of King and Lord of Lords, we ask now that as we approach your word, your gift to us, that you will open our eyes, open the minds of our understanding, clear the darkness in our souls, that we might hear you, respond to you, and obey and bring you pleasure, for you alone are worthy. Amen. The Apostle Paul laments, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of all of us. If you watch good movies or read good literature, you find over and over again people wanting to be something that they're not. Paul says, what we all know, we want to be something better than we are, but we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do. In our lives, we want to be better than we are. We want to be without flaws or mistakes, or without errors. And in our spiritual lives, we want to be seen as holy and thoughtful in the service of God. You know, God is gracious to us in many ways. He brings us biographies, as Pastor Joe has been talking about the last couple of months with 1 Samuel, and we get to close out that book today. God, God's gracious to us. He brings us the biographies of real people and real lives. He wants to give us insight not only into people's behavior, but also their motivation, which he alone can see. He offers us these lives so that we may examine our own lives and learn from their examples, both good and bad. The lives of Saul and David stand in sharp contrast to one another. You've seen this now throughout the texts that have been raised. And it's very easy for us to judge Saul for his frailties, his sins, his bad judgment, and his fear. Yet the reality is that though we would like to be seen as David, very often we are very much like Saul. It's the grace of a delivering God that takes us beyond our faithlessness, the roller coaster of our doubt and our belief in sins that we must rely on. So today as we close the book of 1 Samuel, we get some deep insights into their lives so we may find gratitude and grace and so that we may persist in the truth that is set before us. But we need to begin with one foundational truth that is in this book, and it's very easy to pass over, but I'm convinced it's the cornerstone of the entire book of 1 Samuel. God is delighted when his people listen, but he is displeased when they do not do what he asks them to do. Very simple truth. So to set the stage for understanding this dramatic difference between Paul, between Saul and David, we need to take a look at 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23. There should be a slide behind you. Now, this, this is a phrase that we've all read through in our lives when we've read the Bible. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Now, many of us have read this phrase before. Sometimes we read it very dramatically. Sometimes we just sort of pass through. It's just one of those poems that's in the Bible we just kind of pass on through. And yet, it's an incredibly important principle. It's foundational literally to the entire Bible. And we'll go through pieces of that today. This passage is a very, very deep principle, and it tells us a lot about the difference between David's life and Saul's life. It says, does the Lord delight 
in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Have you ever thought that God knows delight? He knows delight. You know that as well. When a little kid walks in the room and a little kid laughs, like if, if Oscar was to laugh, there, right there, thank you, on cue. There, there's a sense of delight that happens when a little child laughs. Boy, did they cue you up for this, buddy? There's a moment of utter joy and exuberance that goes on. We get that. When we see uh, friends that we haven't seen for a long time, you know what that's like? The door opens up and you see your friend and you, and you give him a big hug. I saw John this morning. I haven't seen him for a while. So there's this moment of delight. Uh, when we see a wedding, we see two people pronounced man and wife. We, there's a moment of delight. Uh, when we attend a graduation or any big thing that happens in people's lives, we get this moment of delight. And one of my favorite personal delights is I may have been running around town all day, been in Milwaukee doing some things, and Mary Jo will say, would you like to grab a sandwich someplace? And when she walks in the door, there's a moment of delight. I just, I'm so happy to see her. So God knows delight. God knows delight. At the end of the days of all creation, what did he say? He said, it's very good. I mean, imagine the satisfaction of being the creator and seeing that out there. And when his son came up out of the water of baptism, what did he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. God knows delight. On a grand scale, he knows delight. So our deepest motivation of all in our Christian lives is to bring him delight. Not to avoid something, but to say, Lord, how can I bring you delight? So God is delighted when his people listen, but he's displeased when they go their own way. If you look into this passage, there's this one word in there that says, listen. You see that word, listen? If you were in a synagogue yesterday, you would have heard these words in Hebrew. Shema, O Yisrael, Adonai, Elohenu, Ehad. The Lord, our God, is one. And if you looked in the Hebrew Bible, you'd see the word Shema, which means to listen, listen, listen in big letters. It's bold because it's the most powerful portion of the Old Testament scriptures to the Hebrew people. God wants us to listen. He takes deep joy in our obedience and listening. Shema, our hearkening to him. He says, listen to me. All of us in our lives have this moment where somebody's been prattling on for a long time, right? And finally, finally, we get that moment of willpower where we say, I'm going to choose to listen to what this person says. Now, any of you that have been on Facebook, anybody, realizes that no one listens to anyone. The whole nation is not listening. All people are doing is yelling at one another about any of a number of things. I always say mayonnaise or Miracle Whip, and my wife and I will argue about that for the next half hour. Because no one's listening to anyone about anything. And the whole history of Israel is nobody's listening to God at all. That's why they end up in these places of trouble. But he keeps saying, listen to me, listen to me. Surely obedience is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. We can go through the motions of spirituality, but God's conscious of the truth. And that sets the stage for the distinction between David and Saul. It's interesting in this passage, if you look behind us, again, we can sort of read through this. But he says, rebellion, now look at this. 
rebellion is as the sin of divination. That means when we rebel against God, it's as bad as witchcraft, which Pastor Joe talked about last week with the witch of Endor. It's bad. It means we're trying to interpret the future using divination. We're trying to use God's ways. We're trying to manipulate him. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to listen. Rebellion is not listening. Rebellion is going our own way. And then it says something even more powerful, which is frightening. He says, presumption is as iniquity and as idolatry. When we presume upon God, this is a very dangerous thing. When we presume upon God, we are planning on his help. That's not the same way, same as understanding that God will be gracious to us. It's literally manipulating God and saying, if I get into trouble, God, I presume you're going to take care of me. That's presumption. It's manipulating God, and he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to listen. It's insubordination. It's arrogance. It's literally to peck at his grace. It's like having family idols. This is not listening. This is manipulating God. But if you look at the history of Saul and his whole life as we come to his end, that is precisely what he did. <coughs> God is delighted when his people listen, but he's displeased when they go their own way. So this passage, 1 Samuel 15, 23, gives us a deep comparison of those who listen and those who just go through the motions. This principle of listening, Shema, rather than going through the motions, is the key to the book. So now we walk into the actual text itself, now that we have that as a background. So if you turn to 1 Samuel 30, it says that when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were there, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. And David and the people who were with them raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives were also taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. All the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. There were no warriors in the town of Ziklag. David had gone off on a campaign. And when he got back, everyone was gone. His leaders wanted to kill him. Understand this now. Anybody who's ever been in a leadership role or a management role, I'm sure your people have thought about that from time to time. They haven't said that and they haven't picked up stones, but if you've ever been in a leadership role, sometimes they've thought it. This is, but this is gut-wrenching fear. It says he was vexed, he was in distress. He thought this is a terrible thing. You know what's interesting? Saul, at one point in time, had a problem like this as well. Things all kind of went wrong on him. You know what he said? Uh, the people made me do all this. He blamed them. But David is vexed in spirit. Does anyone remember the Challenger disaster in 1986? I was sitting in my office and I saw this terrible thing occur. But the months that came after that, the recriminations, 
the anger toward the O-ring disaster. The finger pointing went on to all of the people who had been part of this terrible thing, and the leaders were subjected to tremendous stress. That's the kind of stress that David was under here. His people hated him at that moment. You'll find in a few minutes that the crowd is fickle and they like him again. But at this moment, they don't. But David, instead of fleeing, he could have just said, I don't know what to do at this point. He finds a way to bring delight to God. Look at what the text says. And David said to Obiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. You see, David is going to strengthen himself in the Lord his God. He's going to find a way to bring joy to God. <clears throat> a very famous old Puritan who lived in the 1600s, Stephen Sharnock, one of my favorite authors, says this. And I'll read it slowly because it's Puritan stuff. When we don't consult with God in emergencies, we trust more to our own wisdom, counsel, and sufficiency than to God's, and set ourselves up as our own lords, independent of him, as though we could manage our own lives and manage our own things according to our own pleasure. When we're in trouble, that's the worst time to flee from God. That's the time to turn to him. David was vexed. David said, I'm going to strengthen myself in the Lord. It literally means to play the man. It means to behave valiantly in the Lord. David found a way to delight the Lord. And he said, bring me the ephod. <clears throat> now, ephod is not like a piece of Tupperware. And ephod is one of those weird words that you just never hear, right? It's like, what is an ephod? Well, an ephod is a robe. It literally would go down to below my knees. It all, there was also a bunch of stones up here on a breastplate called an urim and a thummim. David said, bring the ephod to me, Abiathar. He asked the priest, please bring it here. And he consulted the ephod. He wanted to talk to the Lord. He wanted to obey. He wanted to bring some, some pleasure to his Lord. He brought the ephod to him. And this is what happened. And he inquired of the Lord. He's going to listen. Shall I overtake them? He said, pursue, for you shall surely take, and you shall surely rescue. And at that moment, he knew that the Lord his God was with him. But because he had done something to bring delight to his Lord by listening. 200 men stayed behind, and they're important because we'll talk about that in just a little minute. <laughs> but he consulted the ephod. He listened. He found a way to bring delight to his Lord. <coughs> So they went and they found an Egyptian, verse 11, in the open country and brought him to David. Now I want you to think about this. This is open country. How many of you have been in circumstances where if by five minutes or maybe a mile, you would have missed meeting somebody? Anybody ever done that? Sure. This happens. So out in the middle of open country, God provides an Egyptian. This guy is wandering around. He's actually pretty sick because he hasn't eaten in three days. He provides this Egyptian. The Lord is presenting something, and David is attentive to this. David sees this, and he's going to bring delight to his Lord through this. So they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink, and a piece of cake of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirits revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and nights. David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, 
my master left me behind. And the rest of the story, the, this Egyptian is going to help them find where the wives and the children are. And they ultimately do that. This is God's providence to David. This is God providing something to him that would not have happened. Open country is very, very big. You literally could be here in Belgium and miss somebody by five or six seconds. So I want to tell you a little bit of a story about a circumstance that Mary Jo and I are going through where God provided incredible providence. Our daughter has been fighting cancer for 10 years. Many years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference. When I was there, a man came to me and said, would you like to come to lunch? And I said, sure. I've never seen him before, and I've never seen him since. I came to his lunch table. We sat together, and he said, well, if you work for Johnson Controls, why are you up in Minneapolis? And I told him because of what was happening with our daughter. And you would have thought that the man had been thunderstruck at that moment. And he said these words, no surgery. I've never seen him before. I've never seen him since. God provided in that moment a person to tell us, do not do this specific thing. And through the rest of her cancer treatment, even up to this day, we've never given her surgery and it's turned out much for the good for her and for us. God finds ways to teach us. David listened and David brought ways to give his, his father delight. So he defeated his enemy and retrieved his people. You can see the rest of that within the passage. It says nothing was missing. But here's what's interesting to me. Look at verse 20. It says, David and all captured all the flocks and the herds and drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Imagine what this is like. This is after this big victory over the Amalekites. And all of his warriors are saying, this is David's spoil. This is a big moment. This is David's spoil. David's won the day. Now remember, just a few days later, earlier, they were ready to stone the guy. So if you're in a position of leadership, just get it past it. Because tomorrow they'll like you. And the next day they'll want to stone you again. It's just the way it is. Good. Nothing was missing. But it says here that some members of his group, look at what it says. I get a kick out of this one. It says that the 200 that were too exhausted to follow him, you know, came out to meet him. And they went out to meet David. When David came near to the people, he greeted them. He said, we're back. Things have gone well. Listen to this. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among them who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered expect, except that each man may lead away his wife and children. When you've worked really hard at something and you've put your back to the the wheel of the grindstone and shoveled snow or whatever else, and somebody else hasn't worked as hard as you, it's very, very easy to say, they didn't do enough. They shouldn't be blessed here. But David found a way to bring the Lord delight. Look how gracious he is in this moment. He could have said, I'm the great leader. I've done all this. This is to spoil his mind. But he said, no, 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 no. He said, but because they did not go with us, We'll not give them any of the spoil we've recovered, except that each man will lead away his wife and children. David said, no, no, no. You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. 
David was gracious in victory. It shows that he's going to be a mighty king. He shows a way to bring delight to his Lord by being gracious to these people. Anybody ever heard of Revlon? Sure you have. Charles Revson, who was the president of Revlon for a long time, was once going into a building. And as he was going into a building, the security guard said to him, Sir, can I see your badge? Charles Revson said this, Do you know who I am? Thomas Watson, who was the president of IBM for about 30 years, was going into a building one time with all of his entourage. He's the president of IBM, no less. He walks into the building. The security guard says, sir, can I see your badge? And his entourage says, do you know who this is? And Thomas Watson said, no, 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 no. This man is doing his job. You see the dramatic difference in these two leaders. And this is no different than David saying, no, we will be gracious to those people who could not fight with us. They were part of us. And he goes on to give them part of the spoil moving forward. There was a time in, in the history of the church, a long time ago. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian was killing Christians like crazy. He was a terrible, terrible man. And during that time, some Christians recanted their faith. And during that time, some Christians actually gave away sacred texts. And they were called traitors. And after that was all over, there was a group of people called Donatists. You can go look this up later on. They said, no one else except those who have, of us who did not, who did not recant, we'll be the only true church. The rest of you have failed. And Augustine and others said, no, 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 no. Yeah, they failed, but God's grace, grace is gracious enough to bring them back in. David found a way to delight his Lord and by being gracious. You see, we would all love to be seen as David, however, but very often, unfortunately, we are Saul. We look at the end of Saul's life here. I'm not going to read through it. It's a very ignominious death. But think of some of the things that happened to Saul along the way. He offered offerings without Samuel's presence. He was impatient. He made like a strange, illogical vow that people wouldn't eat after battle. He was impulsive. People started losing confidence in his, in his leadership. He wanted to kill his son for disregarding his command. He was reactive. He was impulsive. He was impatient. You ever been impulsive, impatient, reactive? He doesn't complete the tasks that's set before him. That's why Samuel says to him, what about the bleeding of these sheep in my ears? He doesn't complete the task. He rationalizes his behavior. He reacts to David's success with jealousy, and not only that, he wants to kill David. And not only that, but he kills the priests at Nob. He's a murderer. He's jealous. He has murder in his heart. He murders the priests. His jealousy inflames him and clouds his thinking. He even goes so far as to contact a witch to bring Samuel up from the dead. So think about these jealousy, his murder in his heart, he has jealousy. He uses other means than the Lord to consult God or to, to consult to, to get information. We do that. We want to be David. I want to be David. I want to be the gracious, welcoming, thoughtful, but I am so often Saul. We come to this last grievous chapter in Saul's life. At the end of all of it, he dies this horrible death. He literally falls on his own sword. 
It's always simple, though, to cast stones at our enemies and really laugh brazenly at them when we fall. In fact, there's a German word for it, schadenfreude. We all kind of participate in that in this particular culture. Saul dies ignominiously. He's a self-inflicted death of dishonor at the end of a self-inflicted life of trouble over and over and over again. He made terrible decisions on his own inclinations. The reality is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we all have these fractured lives like Saul. We, we act impatiently. We're impulsive. We're jealous. We have murder in our heart when we're angry with people. All those things are true. Sometimes we even go through the motions of religion rather than obey and bring delight to our Lord. We learn the language of the faith community. We know how to use Bible verses. We know how to say the right phrases. Saul did all that. He went through the motions, but he was not listening. You see, we'd all love to be seen as David, but without the grace of God, we are all Saul. But there was another Saul who became Paul, and he's finished that lament. Remember where I brought the very first phrase? Ooh, I, this person that I am, I don't want to be. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see the smile on Paul's face at that point? He's just exulting in the fact that his Savior has paid for his sins, his impulsiveness, his impetuousness. Paul was a murderer. Paul was impulsive. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? You see, we have in all of our fracturing this wonderful gospel that says we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who right now at this moment implores for us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our failings and all those things. And still, Jim, you are forgiven. I love you. So in our lives, we can change. We can progressively change over time. And I've seen this over 46 years of walking with the Lord. We can change by finding ways to bring delight to God. It's not just about, oh, he doesn't want me to do this. But if I choose not to do pornography, if I choose not to engage in my addiction, if I choose not to have and be involved in domestic violence, it's not just because it's a not thing. It's because I want to find ways to delight my Lord. I want to find ways to bring a smile to his face and exuberance to him that says, my people are walking and bringing me joy. Not some sort of onerous obedience, but a heart full of desire to please God. Then we'll be like David. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you now, O God, for this time to open your word for your kindness to us and your everlasting love in the name of Jesus Christ.